0: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective.
1: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Dr. Amy Conrad. Amy is a pediatrician, mother, and founder of the Kinder Digital Pediatric Clinic, the only digital pediatric platform that connects families with their own pediatrician from anywhere, just a message away. Amy is also the podcast host of Ask Dr. Amy, where she empowers listeners with evidence-based science with attention to nutrition, mental health, and lifestyle information to create a happy and healthy childhood. Today, we're talking about intergenerational trauma and raising healthy children. Amy, I want to welcome you to our show.
2: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: It's nice to have you. You know, as we, we 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 talk about this, let me just kind of notice, yours is the only digital pediatric platform helping families connect with their own pediatrician, and you have your own podcast. And these are pretty unique avenues for a physician to get into. Share us a little bit of a history that brought you into these.
2: Yeah, of course. So for me, I think it all started with content creation. Before anything else, there was Ask Dr. Amy, which I started in medical school. I worked for Khan Academy at one point and made videos for them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right? I actually still love Khan Academy. And They're
1: phenomenal.
2: Yeah. And I really I saw the power of education in this format. And as I became a pediatrician through the training process, I noticed in my day-to-day work, I rarely have time to really talk to parents the way I would like to, in depth and explain things. And also, there's a lot of repetitive questions. And I just mm-hmm. thought I be able to be able to answer once and for all, I started pivoting my YouTube content towards mm-hmm. questions for parents. I mean, to this day, content creation is still a big part of what I do because I think parents out there need and deserve good resources. So these days we can all Google and find a lot of things, but things that are actually helpful and evidence-based and trustworthy, but also understandable and relatable, there's actually not a lot of that. So that's where my podcast is today, Ask Dr. Amy, same with YouTube channel. And from there, I created the digital pediatric company because I thought let's take this one step further what are we missing in pediatrics that can actually provide better care and again it comes down to the connection with families so that's where i started i want to be a resource for parents
1: i think i think that's excellent you know i think sometimes the the appointments that we can have with with our physician sometimes isn't isn't as long as anyone any one of us would like it to be just because of the the, the nature of how it works and i love the idea of kind of backfilling and filling in some of the necessary information that people can go to and have as a as a resource That can really be a benefit around that. You also mentioned something that relates to intergenerational trauma, our topic for today, Mm -hmm. but you talked about your your focus on the family and what's gotten you to appreciate that component of healthcare? I think
2: that pediatricians all intrinsically know that this is family-based medicine, but through actual practice, it becomes obvious that first nothing changes about a child's experience or child's Mm. health without involvement of the family, that it's all interdependent. And especially when it comes to the mental health aspect, I found that awareness on the part of the parents of how that relationship is really more subtle and more involved than we would be led to believe that things like trauma and the kind of Mental environment that we're raising our kids in make a huge difference. So over time, I found myself, especially through kinder, you know, having the one-to-one personalized relationship with the families, I found myself becoming almost a counselor for parents, that so much of this is actually in our heads. And the way that the more we can understand ourselves, the more we can kind of control or at least have awareness into what we're doing for our kids. So I think that all pediatricians would tell you that it's about the family, it's about the parents, but I think that we need an even greater focus on helping, you know, in the day-to-day life, helping parents realize how much of their self-understanding is crucial to this process.
1: Yeah, I think that's good. You know, I love the idea that as a physician, you're conscious of and sensitive to this construct of trauma. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And we're going to be talking about that in just a few minutes And, and its potential role you know, in, in the lives of the of the people that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. What caught your attention initially about trauma in the lives of your, you know, we patients? And also the share with us kind of a, a growing appreciation for the reality of intergenerational trauma.
2: Yeah, so it's actually in some of the childhood development psychology literature, you know, in the book, The Trauma of the Gifted Child, is where I started to encounter this trauma-based narrative where the things that we are observing in kids can actually be traced to. When we say trauma, we are likely to think of really dramatic things that happen, which a lot of times they do happen. But from a child's perspective, in the context of what their brain needs as it develops, trauma can be very subtle as well. Yes. So once I started reading in the subject, I saw how the minor tweaks in our environment can really make a huge difference in the childhood.
1: I like that idea that there are different ranges. I think, you know, often we've done a lot of trauma shows with the podcast here and talking about kind of the big T traumas and the little T traumas. Right. N- neither one any less important or potentially more severe in one's life, but the you know, the big T traumas are often the ones that are easy to see. And we'll talk about some of the things that you've noticed that can be very impactful and oftentimes easier to see. We we might even call those kind of like the 9/11 traumas or the kind of Vietnam, and and those are real and they are significant and need work. But sometimes maybe kind of the softer signs or kind of the the little T traumas are more relational in nature. And that tends to be more the transgenerational transmission of these traumas, isn't it? What are some of the things that you see in the lives of your patients that might be indicating trauma possibly being a part of their lives that you want to address?
2: Absolutely. So I think that what I'm observing with this generation, my generation of parents, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of anxiety. And when parents come to me with usually a physical symptom in their child, say they're not eating, they're underweight, or you know, a variety of things, ADHD, depression, I think the first thing is to parse out the little T's that you just mentioned. And what it is that as we're having this conversation, because usually I'm talking to the parents, what it is that actually belongs to the parents' experience and what actually belongs to the children. And bringing it back to the child's perspective, what we know about developmental psychology, and the young brain is so different from our brain. And as psychologists, I'm sure a lot of your work is with the subconscious later finding and healing those things that happened. But in early childhood, we're actually establishing the subconscious and what actually happens in that process. So Understanding that kids need security above all else. They need security before they even understand their need for it. And that security is actually not just physical security, the way that we're thinking of it, but in things like having a responsive parent, which for babies can be as subtle as facial expressions that respond Mm -hmm. to in real time what, what they're feeling, what they're seeing. So knowing how minute and subtle these signs are, I started to see you know, the relational quality between the child and the parents. Is the parents talking about something from their perspective or are we observing the child? You know, these kinds of subtle disconnect to me became a sign for how much is the parent in their own head and how much is this experience based on observing the child rather than projecting something that they have experienced. So it can be really... Subtle, again, and it takes yes. a lot of conversation and leading parents to being willing to be self-introspective and seeing what could be there. But I would say that actual science can be universal. It can be yes. anything that comes up. But once a problem is put on the table to really delve into the history of that, how do they come into this understanding and the different perspectives and then to go from there?
1: Yeah. Well, there's so many good nuggets (laughs) that you just shared right there. Some really good things. One of the things I like to kind of grab is, you know, trauma, we we think there has to be some kind of big insult that occurs. And in fact, many times with trauma that in fact occurs, but we can, I think we can broaden this definition and I think it fits with the text, but trauma is anything outside the realm of normal experience. Yes. Yes. And if we can keep it like that, we get to say, well, normal experience for a child would would be a child who develops some of the developmental milestones like trust versus mistrust, safety, identity, part being part of a family, et cetera. And and the idea that if families are you know involved in congruent parenting, selfless parenting, it's about the children being being able to kind of put their own needs aside and recognize what the child needs. That's what we're intended to have. That's that's inside the realm of what's supposed to be a normal experience and development. Trauma, outside the realm of normal experience. When there's not an attunement, when there, it can be something traumatic, but it can also be maybe the parent denies the child's reality, or maybe the parent, because of their own trauma back in the day, doesn't see or really listens to or attunes to their child. Or maybe the, a parent you know, vicariously lives through their child. Or maybe a, a parent, because they went through some of their things transgenerationally, they don't know how to show up for their child emotionally. Maybe the child's emotions scare the parent because there was never anybody there for them to begin with. And it's hard to give what you never got. So how do you you come alongside and how do you hold a child in their emotion? Or maybe a parent overcompensates for things that they didn't have. Maybe the pendulum swings and they're doing some things on the other side. So I think what you're talking about here is such a good perspective and you also said something really key. This is unconscious.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Part of therapy that the work I do, part of what you're talking about in these conversations with with parents is you're making the unconscious conscious to helping them see what they're doing without being judgmental. No. Chances are it's their best way to manage and, and parent their child the, the, in the way they know how. But it sounds like you're looking to both bring this to their attention and then help them create some strategies.
2: Absolutely. Everything you just said, and it's one of my key. that I always believe in, that parents are doing their best. Mm -hmm. That there's never, you know, outside of very, very outliers, there's no parent that's not trying to do their best, but we don't talk about this before people will have children. We don't talk about this during parenting. There's one experiment I like to talk about to illustrate how subtle this can be. So if you imagine there's a child and a mom pair in a room, there's a camera pointed at mom's face. while mom is interacting with the baby. So while she is responding to the baby's cues, or laughing and playing, her face is being recorded. The child is actually looking at the screen that's showing the mom's face instead of the mom. But because of the way the video camera is set up, the baby is seeing her in real time. So they spent a long time in this room interacting, playing, the baby is calm. And then mom steps outside, of the view of the camera. And the baby is looking at the same screen, having a playback of everything that just happened in the last 30 minutes. So the same mom, same face, but now instead of in real time, the baby's watching a recording of her face from 30 minutes ago. And immediately, because of the lack of real time responsiveness, the baby becomes fussy, he starts crying. He realizes mom is not paying attention to him, even if she is smiling and doing the same thing she just did. So like you said, what is normal for a baby? Yes. that responsiveness is part to part of our survival, you know as when we were in the wild, without the attunement of a caregiver like that, a yes. baby would not survive. So that's why it's so deeply ingrained in our biology that we need yeah. this to feel secure. So knowing how subtle this is, you know, that's why it's very traumatic for children to have a parent who's depressed because that inability to be present is a big T actually to children that not having this real time responsiveness. And like you said, the point is never to judge. And actually the more work I do on this, the more I see that it's never too late. It's actually never too late to become aware of this and how quickly that change happens. We can have teenage kids that you know, the relationship has been strained and disconnected through all of these things, despite everyone's best efforts. But yeah. once the parent realizes the yeah. process, it's like a light switches on. And I love seeing that sudden transformation in a relationship
1: that can happen. We'll be right back after word
0: from our sponsor. Nearly nine in 10 registered voters believe the nation faces a mental health crisis, according to a new USA Today Suffolk University poll. Americans are more concerned than ever about their mental health. Mental Health First Aid provides the resources and training to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges. It provides the confidence and skills needed to offer life-saving assistance, and it provides peace of mind. Our experts provide Mental Health First Aid training for adults, teens, caregivers, veterans, law enforcement, EMS, and school faculty. Mental health concerns are on the rise, but evidence-based training through Mental Health First Aid can make a difference. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find a course near you or email hello at mentalhealthfirstaid.org to schedule a training. Courses are available for individuals, groups, organizations, and companies of all sizes. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org and make a difference in your community.
1: What you're describing is something so relational, and we forget sometimes that we, you know, we're created to be relational beings. That's yes. where our identity, our security, everything gets formed. And and we I, I haven't seen that experiment. I'm going to look that up. But there's, there's a similar one I think might have predated it in some ways. It's called the still-faced mm. experiment. You can look it up on, on YouTube. It's a very hard experiment to watch. The child's kind of in a high chair type thing, and the parents sitting right across, and and the baby's interacting, you know, with her, and the mom's mirroring these things back so beautifully. And this exchange back and forth is so lovely, and the child is just yes. in this great world. And then all of a sudden, the mom turns around, mm-hmm. turns back, and the mom's face is still. Yes, and the baby doesn't quite know what to do, and the baby kind of gets a little anxious and tries to, you know, point at things and laugh at things, and and the mom's not responding, and the baby becomes panicked. Yes, and she's afraid yeah and when you're when you're talking about how the absence of that kind of interaction we psychically die it's, it's a psychic annihilation mm-hmm. of who we are and who we're intended to be and it is it's a hard video to watch and then the mom you know yes. thankfully <laughs> comes back around and re-engages and the baby's like yes you know so yep. it's it's happy again but it, it it highlights the very thing you're saying that these interactions are so very key and so there's an anxious parent a depressed parent, again. While there's no judgment, we get to appreciate the impact, don't we, and how these can things can really shape not just the psychological aspects of our children, but it comes out in some of the behavioral things. Whether it's like you said, you know, a, a fearfulness or nightmares or mm-hmm. irritability, and it really plays out, doesn't it, in very demonstrated ways in a child's life.
2: Yes. And past the newborn period, every stage of this has a different version. So once they become more aware, a child's default is to repair that connection. Because again, we are evolved to be this way. So for a toddler, for example, they will do whatever it takes to feel that connection. And they will, however you treat them, however you require them to be, to feel loved, that would become their normal. Whether that is hiding their emotions, suppression, whether it's not crying or not having needs or taking care of others and not showing up for themselves, whatever it is, again, these subtle dynamics that we create, sometimes with our best intentions, it becomes that child's way of dealing with themselves and compounding this through years and years and years down the road. Then, you know, they end up in... Your office (laughs) and this, you know, the psychologist can help them unpack all of that. And this is how generational trauma happens kind of in a cycle because by by that point, like you said, that we can only give what we know. So unconsciously, those programming then gets passed on and on and on. And I believe it's possible to break the chain and it's awareness, awareness, awareness becomes very important. I think that's really half the battle and everyone has their own timing into becoming aware of this. But yeah, I think without, without that effort and the intention to try to break the chain, the default is to keep going.
1: That idea of one's whole life is in the service of trying to repair a disconnection. Mm-hmm. It, that That's the unconscious piece. Everything we do is in the service of trying to create a corrective experience that we didn't have early on yes. at the same time. We're trying to kind of quarantine or kind of separate those things that we don't want to be have hurt further. so we're trying to protect ourselves at the same time. we're trying to repair the 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 the, the, the rupture and we're also trying to pr- protect ourselves and it becomes a way of life, yes, and that becomes a way then of parenting mm-hmm. and it all kind of flows into one another, doesn't it?
2: Yes, and you know we all say, "Oh, I'm turning into my parent." You know, it's it's in a way it's humorous, but there's truth to that as well. And having kids can be incredibly triggering when there are unknown, unexplored parts of our own trauma and psyche when it's presented to us through that child relationship. Again, out of anxiety or trying to do well for them, the projection then perpetuates the cycle where we're not seeing the child, and that. Reiterates their trauma because whatever it is that's, that's right is the filter between our experience with our kids, that is separation as well. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. And that separation piece is where, where all these things develop. Let, let's go back over for our listeners. As, as a pediatrician, trauma doesn't come in, you know, wearing a t shirt that says, Hey, I've been traumatized or I've got inter- mm-hmm. intergenerational trauma, but it comes in more behaviorally for children. Yes. What are some of the identifying signs again of trauma, potential trauma that you might? You know, in addition to doing all the things that you typically do, but relationally or other things you see, what are some identifying signs that you begin to kind of maybe mine down a little bit deeper and just to make sure?
2: I think when things come up that I can't find a physical cause for, for example, if the parent comes in and tells me something as simple as my child is not eating, but we yes. put them on the scale, put them on a growth spurt, they're growing okay, and I'm not mm-hmm. seeing any physical signs then that's where we take into account the mental side. What is beneath the anxiety of not feeding the child well? What's under the anxiety of everything in their experiences parenting? So oftentimes the the stories do come up, you know, if the parent has experienced the the traumatic things that they can talk about, things like, I don't know, divorce, PTSD, any kind of stress, natural disasters, COVID, you know, the things that they have gone through, sometimes they have enough awareness to say it out loud, but if not, then I go back and ask them, what does this remind you of your childhood? What is the fear? What is the fear underneath the concerns that you're having?
1: Let me just stop you right there. That is a really sophisticated way, (laughs) truly, not just focusing on the child, but having the parent bring in some awareness, understanding of, what part do you have in this? Not, 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 not in a judgmental way, Yeah. but in a partnered way to help make sense of what's going on in this moment that the child's presenting with. I love that.
2: Thank you. Yeah. One thing I say to them often is the way you're feeling, it, it's a real feeling, but it's not necessarily true. That's right. That you really feel this way and this fear is real, but where does it come from? Because, yeah. And I help them see that sometimes it's not based on reality. And then what does this fear do to your relationship with the child? What is the, you know, the rupture or the repair that is happening or not happening because of it? So I think that most of the time I find parents very willing to, sometimes they're not and they're not ready and that's okay. But at, and then at some point I feel like many are open to considering what is this reflecting back on me? And it's, it can be kind of a relief actually to understand that the thing that is so anxiety provoking to them, there's another dimension, there's another possibility of considering it.
1: Well, sometimes, and you're kind of inferring this, but you're also helping the parent. (laughs) Yes. Maybe realize that maybe I've been carrying some things here that for me have been maybe unknown or unappreciated, but they're very much a part of my own life.
2: Absolutely. And I think that without that component, parenting is so stressful because it makes us focus on getting the kids to do something. And that is always not a good way to come into any relationship. And you know, without the boundaries, we talk about boundaries, and it's important to have boundaries with the littlest kids because they need to be respected and treated like their own person. But it's almost impossible to have that separation of boundary without realizing how much we bring of ourselves into this process. And it's really not about being perfect at all. I don't know any parent who can do this perfectly, but it's the constant effort and the cycles and cycles of becoming aware, losing awareness, becoming aware again, and then practicing this. So it's as simple as when the situations triggering a feeling for us, practicing being able to take a pause before we react, take a pause and ask ourselves, what is this feeling in my body? Where is this coming from? And then trying to see what's actually happening to my kid right now. What are they actually doing? And then before we assign all the meanings and the motives and the things that then, you know, in the snap judgment, we tend to project a lot of things on children that hopefully we can avoid with a little bit of a pause.
1: I like that. I want to park on this part a little bit. So you might have people come in and this is for our listeners sake. And I want to grab the things you're saying, you know, a child might come in and. In addition to the the wellness check that you're giving them, they, may, they might, you know, talk about nightmares or being kind of fearful or
0: mm-hmm. maybe some
1: irritability, or you might find maybe some of their grades have dropped, or maybe there's some disciplinary issues that are not, they're not normal for a kid, or maybe some avoidant things in the school. And you you can, you know, you can track these things. And is there something going on in the home? Is there some process that the parents are going through or something environmentally that the child gets to have that, you know, you get to have some awareness of. And maybe the the parent gets to have an appreciation for Wow, I didn't even think about how these things could be impacting my child. And, you know, children don't have a frontal lobe and they can't, they don't have a self-awareness yet. So the only thing that they do is they act on, they act out, they behaviorally reveal and show. And if we want our children to kind of behave and do well, we sometimes begin to squelch those behaviors because they're outside the realm of what we want them to need them to be. But all they're doing is kind of having a cry for help that says, hey, there's something going on with me that I'm not even aware of that I'm hoping you pick up on the signs of. And you're you're helping parents maybe more aware of what some of these soft signs really mean and how they can be explained as something of significance.
2: Yeah, I like to help parents practice the thought that a lot of times it's natural for us to assign motives Two things based on what, what it would mean if we did that. So yeah. starting as early as early toddlerhood, when they're going towards having tantrums and those behaviors, if we hit somebody, it means one thing. And that's why it's triggering to see our kids do those things because we that's don't true. want them to be violent. We don't want them to be A, B, and C. But it almost never means the same coming from them as to us. And having that separation of, again, you're not projecting your fear and your interpretation of their behavior onto them because there's judgment in that. You know, you hit somebody, you're a bad kid. And I think it's important for parents to keep in mind, they have to be the first ones to believe in the goodness of their children, that kids need us to trust them to be good. And I think that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we can separate the child from their behavior and try to meet them where they are in their view of what they just did, then we can address any behavior without harming the relationship. I think discipline is really important. Boundary is important. And our kids need us to be able to provide that in a way that doesn't harm their sense of self or harm their sense of security and love. And that is, again, something that is all wrapped up in this. So, say a toddler is having a tantrum. I would say, number one, pause. <laughs> See if you can give it a few seconds before you do anything. And number two, think about what it would mean if I did this. And then consciously tell yourself it does not mean that, the fact that they are doing this. And then number three, you know, thinking about what you just said, what has been different in our home? have I been going through any stress? Because remember, kids are our mirrors. So is there something stressful to me that is perhaps making me less present or react in a way that they are responding to? And then, you know, meeting them where they are, like a person, using words, getting them to share, and just affirming that you love them while you work on whatever the issue is. So separating your projection, your fears... From the presence, and I think kids really need us to show up for them like that, for them to know that your love is dependable, your presence is dependable, and they can, you know, be free to be how they are, what without fear of losing your love.
1: Boy, those are good. I, I, I want to, as I'm listening, I want to. I'm just thinking. I, w- I would love to have you come back at, at some point and talk about the importance of boundaries and yes. discipline.
2: I uh, love that. These are yeah.
1: these are not things that we do to a child. These are things that we mm-hmm. do for a child. Yes. And it and it, it encourages their growth and 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 that's such a key piece. And those have almost become bad words in parenting nowadays. And yes. we see the results of a lot of children really struggling because parents haven't been strong enough and courageous enough and maybe know how to mm-hmm. create necessary and healthy boundaries and discipline. But you're 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 helping folks have parents particularly have a, a really nice stepwise process to kind of just stop, take a <laughs> breath. Yes, your breath, <laughs> breathe, reflect on what's going on and say, hey, how do I want to enter this moment rather than being reactive? Let me be let me be intentional and let me get curious about what's going on. I might need to stop the bad behavior, but then I get to circle back around and say, hey, what was going on and right. what, what's happening? And you're encouraging them to strengthen that relationship through curiosity and grounding it and hey, we're OK, but we need to talk about this and let's let's make some sense of this so the child doesn't feel alone And the parent is coming at it in a way where they're managing their own anxiety about it and reactivity to it, but also helping the child maybe get a little curious to us. What's being expressed in this behavior that I'm seeing?
2: Absolutely. And this whole process is very, it's very hard if that's not the way that we were brought up. And it's not the way, yeah. And triggers are real. And, you know, Mm -hmm. this process that we just described is similar to how, how you should handle conflict with many different people. But we don't think of our kids like a stranger or a coworker or even our partner. We think the ownership and love that we have for them can sometimes blur those boundaries. So out of anxiety to make them into the way we want them to be, I think we can lose their personhood like that. But you know, I think kids feel it. If we come into it with trust and faith in their goodness and we say, you know, I love you. I know you're a good kid, but what you just did is not okay. Versus coming and say you're a bad kid. And that was bad and we need to, you know, punish it, whatever it is, those, you know, those compound over the years. And I think that when we think of teenagehood as a very scary time and the rebellion, all of that, all the things that we accumulate in that relationship up till then, I think makes a difference. And it's a relationship to be constantly cared for and repaired and fostered like we do with other relationships. And it's important very early on.
1: You know, when you lay it out like that, I think there's something worth noting. It's it's a big ask, yes, for a parent who is triggered, yes, to go into that moment managing their triggers because it's typically unconscious, but so they're reacting to it. So it's a big ask to ask a parent to come in when triggered and then to parent in a way that they themselves have not been parented. Yes. They're Absolutely. having to give something that they've never received. Yes. And it's almost like, well, just do it. Well, just do what? <laughs> well, what am I supposed to do in these moments? But what I love that you're doing is you're saying, these are some ways just to kind of slow it down. Mm-hmm. And if you can kind of recognize a hey, ham triggered right now and just kind of hold that yes. and find that and trust that if I can just kind of enter this relationship with my child and just say, hey, what's going on? Or you're giving them these strategies and these steps. Again, just to be curious and interested and engaged, not permissive, mm-hmm. but also saying, I want to understand it the way that you're experiencing it. That's where things begin to kind of move.
2: And I find that most times people are actually really relieved by this idea because they've been so <laughs> stressed thinking there's something wrong with their child. Yeah, And it's a relief to come in and say, hey, yes. you're beliefs, your reality shapes the way you view things. And there's a totally different possible way to go about this. And I think, like you said, it's hard to give what we have never gotten, but that is what pattern breaking is. And I tell them it should be uncomfortable and it should be awkward and you're going to stumble. And we all, you know, we're all in the same boat here. It's not unique that good communication is not natural to us for most of us, because that's just not how our society has been. But I think also the the thought that giving kids this intentionally, it's just like giving them a better diet than you grew up with, yeah. sending them to a better school than you could. All of these things, we it it kind of fits with that universal desire to give our kids the best thing. And I find that most parents, once they understand there's this dimension, it's almost fun to explore. Oh, what, what could yes. this mean other than the I, way I've struggled with it so
1: much? Yeah, I think I think most parents want their children to be better off than they were. Yes. I think they want to have them to have things that they didn't have. And you're talking about ways that we can kind of help them unlock that managing mm-hmm. their triggers, maybe learning some new strategies to talk, to give what they never got. Yeah. But there's a vicarious healing that takes place for the parent themselves as well. When they're giving that child and coming in differently in the way that they wish someone had joined them in childhood, like you're saying, their their child's getting what they need and maybe the parent's getting some healing and and maybe the parent takes a parenting course or maybe they read a book or maybe they come back after reading some things and they run it by you or listen to one of your podcasts and they basically develop a skill set and some emotional muscle, some affective tolerance, some emotional muscle to come into those moments anew and therein lies the hope.
2: Yeah. And it used to be almost luck that some people would have a parent who was raised (laughs) in such a way that, you know, they, they get to have this kind of environment, but it is possible to create that. I think intentionally starting anytime. So I think that's an empowering aspect for parents to understand. And yeah, I've seen amazing, amazing insight come to parents and the more they practice this like anything else, it becomes more natural and it's just a beautiful thing to watch.
1: Well, you're kind of leading into something right there. You're saying I've seen some of these things take place. Is there any story that comes to mind with a parent improving their own understanding of trauma and maybe supporting their child through some things?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's so many. Let me think. So I, for example, in Boston, we have a lot of families with They're high achieving parents. And there's one family where they have two kids. The older boy is the typical overachiever, just like the parents. He is, you know, basically races himself. He's perfect in every way. And of course, you have the younger brother who is. He's going to balance it out. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. To balance out the family, his. Just nobody really gets him because his parents and his older brother are so similar. And this mom comes in convinced there's something wrong with him. He's not going to be able to take care of himself in the future. He's not going to be able to get a job. He can't even make it through school. And Dr. Amy,
1: please fix my child. Please (laughs) fix my child.
2: Exactly. I mean, this anxiety is so... She's on the verge of tears because she really believes that his life will be ruined by the fact that he can't perform in school and behave this way. So we brought it down to again where she comes from and she came from a family where to be seen you need to achieve so there's so much connection personhood and a certain so a way of being and her fear that her kid won't you know perform a certain way Ashley goes as deep as she's afraid that he's not gonna be worthy. He is, something's wrong with him. So, you know, and that relationship has been very stressed by this. You know, of course this younger boy feels like nobody gets him. Uh And so why would he behave well? Why would he do anything for people who are just not gonna get him? So, you know, our challenge, it was step-by-step. It's like two steps forward, one step back. But, you know, in the beginning I said, even if you don't believe it, even if you don't believe any of this, Let's try talking to him differently this week, and you know asking open-ended questions and not jumping in to fix his response. you know asking, what do you think Sorry. about this without immediately being like, "Well, you could do this better and this and this and this way?" So sometimes it's before the inside is impossible, just doing tangible, practical things. And even if you don't feel like doing it, just ask this question and then listen. So starting from there, you know, helping her realize that different is not scary, that her son is brilliant in his way. And there's a lot of respect there that can be recovered. And this child started opening up and their, their behaviors that were, you know, acting out, getting attention, all of that. It's not perfect. Again, it's not like overnight it's gone, but they were able to talk about it. And if it's just amazing to see her almost rediscover this child. And he was already a teenager. And you know. And I say, this is only the first 14, 15 years of your relationship with him. Hopefully you have decades more to go with him. It doesn't end at 18. So repairing that relationship whenever we can, I, I was very happy to have seen the progress they made.
1: A couple of things come to mind is how much trust you develop with those that you're working with for them to allow you to pause with them and to suggest, hey, what if we just tried this? Let's let, let's just mm-hmm. trust this process. It might be kind of new and yeah, maybe it's kind of ethereal here. You got quite not <laughs> no know quite what it is. But if you could just trust me, and just try it. Let's just see. And and I love that piece. I I also, as you're talking about this child, I very immediately went to three decades from now. That child's going to be in my office, Okay. Oh, yeah. working through. Sadly, working through this sense of I'm not enough. Yes, I'm never understood. I can't be seen. And his whole life mm-hmm. would have been shaped by that. And we we would work through it. Yes. But he's got to repair and do the kind of the rehab on these early interactions and this sense of self that comes out of these interactions, the parent's not meaning to hurt him, right. but not knowing how to engage with him in a way that can discover who he is uniquely. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love that you're doing very early on, not letting that cornerstone be misset in who he is. Yes. And that's a wonderful, wonderful place to, I mean, for me, that's kind of like primary prevention, not secondary yes. tertiary what I tend to do. Exactly. That's primary prevention, isn't it?
2: Yes. And I think it should be the whole way through. Once we become aware that this dimension exists, it can be transformative in every way. But how much more, how much more do we get out of it if, when we start as early as possible? I just, you know, once we recognize that we change this narrative of, especially now the overachieving narrative, we can start to think of our kids like an algorithm. But I think this way of thinking brings us back to really reclaiming that relationship and that child and you know, changes our really our experience as well.
1: Yeah, and we, you know, again, we're relational beings, and you're you're providing this, this foundation upon which to have the best opportunity to have the most rewarding relationship between a parent and child. We're going to have it our whole lives, whether we want it or not.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> Even the gnarliest parent-child relationships, they they are still seeking each other out. I see it all the time. Yes. But if we can build it on these positive engagements and this shared understanding and knowing. What a wonderful foundation. So, well, I would love our listeners to learn more about you and uh, the intergenerational trauma that you're talking about. Ask Dr. Amy podcast, Kinder Digital Pediatric Clinic, more about you and your work. Give us some resources for them to do so.
2: Absolutely. So you can always find me at Ask Doctor Amy. The word "doctor" is spelled out on every platform. It's the same. So on YouTube, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can just search Ask Doctor Amy. My Instagram is Ask Doctor Amy, and my website is Ask Doctor Amy. I've tried to make it easy.
1: I like consistency. Um, That works. Yeah.
2: So that's how. And then you know, in terms of intergenerational trauma, one great resource is on Instagram. It's a psychologist, Dr. Nicole. She's at the Holistic Psychologist, and her entire page is full of these resources and helping people unpack what they experience as children, what the patterns are they're experiencing today. So I learned a lot from her as well. So that was a great resource.
1: Really good. In fact, some of the things I read off today came from just a a reminder from her site, the holistic psychologist. It's really a good site too, as well as yours. So thank you. Well, Amy, it's been wonderful to have you on the show today. I really enjoyed the things you're sharing and thanks for what you're doing in that in this primary prevention way and just helping people not just be experiencing good health, you know, through their in, in their children, but also really focusing on allowing them to have something that a lot of folks don't know how to engage or encourage, but that's for them to have the best relationship that they possibly can within that parent-child relationship. So nicely done and great to have you with us here today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I see us all kind of working towards the same goal. Health is connected, mental, physical. So my work, your work, it's all that on the same continuum. So great. Yeah. yeah, thank you for having me today.
1: Great to have you here. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for joining Amy and me today. It's always great to have you join us. I want to remind you that our episode today and its resources and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com BHT. So check out our webpage, triadhq.com BHT, and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today.